Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the October 11, 2016 edition of Ask a Leader. We'll hear from Irvine mayoral candidate Marianne Guido. Then, local activist and former mayor Larry Agron will shed light on dark money in local campaigns. Then finally, Orange County Registrar Voters Neil Kelly will post us on the latest ballot logistics and early voting opportunities. I hope there's lots of early ones. So a reminder, folks, check your local voter registrar's office a website to confirm that you are registered. If you're not, the deadline is October 24, even though lots of battleground states, the deadline's today. So thank your blessings if, for those of you not registered. We'll be right back after a really short break. Welcome back to the show. My first guest is Irvine mayoral candidate and current planning commissioner, Marianne Guido. And she, uh, Marianne Guido, has been serving on the planning commission since Beth Crom appointed her in 2000. And Marianne Guido also has served on the planning commission from 1986 to 1990. She previously was elected to two terms on the city council from 1976 to 1984. From 1991 to 2006, Marianne was the vice president of advocacy and governmental relations for St. Joseph Health System. She was founding member of the boards of Irvine Housing Opportunities, Jamboree Housing, the Kennedy Commission of Orange County, the Orange County Community Housing Corporation, and the Orange County Affordable Housing Clearinghouse. Marianne Guido served for 12 years as a board member of the National Interfaith Center on Corporate Responsibility. Currently, she serves as vice chair of the Irvine Community Land Trust and is a city-appointed board member of the Irvine Barclay Theater. And those of you who've taken a hike recently or in the last maybe a couple two four years you can see the public plaque that honors Marianne Guido's involvement in the city's extensive open space that we are all benefiting from I'm uh, working on getting all the mayoral candidates on the show not everybody has confirmed I'm waiting for one more Marianne was last on this show in October 13th. You can hear my podcast on my Ask a Leader website to hear she was speaking to the raising of the living wage issue. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Marianne Guido. And before beginning this interview, I must disclose that I have made a contribution to Marianne Guido's mayoral campaign. So Irvine the city of, according to the 2013 estimate, has now, uh, well, this is 2013, has a population of over 237,000 folks. The 2010 demographic profile breaks down to 51.5% white, 45.1% Asian, 9.2% Latino, 1.8% African American. And these figures are really subject to change given the significant amount of Asian, especially Chinese capital, being vested in Southern California cities. So now, Marianne Guido, with uh, that, that press of investment, that immensity of growth, there is so much pressure development pressure occurring it's a international real estate market now it's a <laughs> words out so tell us what you envision at this juncture uh, you would like to do with the city's master plan 
Well, thank you, Claudia. I am very concerned about the city's master plan. As you know, I was uh, a resident of Irvine and appointed to the Planning Commission at the very beginning of the city. So in 1973, the original city councilwoman, Gabrielle Pryor, appointed me to the Planning Commission, and I was able to talk about the general plan to receive information and to actually make advice to the city council about the way in which the city would grow from its incorporation forward. At that point, we, we looked at a city that would probably be the size of 250,000. Ah, you're and right close. decided that was the maximum population for the master plan city of Irvine. Today, we have 259,000 residents. Okay. And the city's current information on demographics suggests that we are moving to 287,400 population in in the uh, year for the next census round. 2035. Oh, okay. Past this uh, two census data collection points from now. So we are growing at a very rapid growth in the city of Irvine. So we'll fast forward through my years on the Planning Commission, the City Council in the 1970s and 80s, and back on the Planning Commission, and most recently on the Planning Commission. And I've been warning about our growth and development of uh, new population moving too fast, too rapidly to keep up with the city's infrastructure. In fact, my friend, Dr. Newman, has done a graph for me and that shows that if we continue to grow with new residents the way we have in the last four years, we will reach our ultimate population of 287,000 in just four years. Whoa. Okay. And well, yes, when you ha- when you're interacting concern. when you're in excuse me, when you're interacting with your colleagues, what kind of a reaction, what kind of vision, what sort of what kicks in when this this sort the immensity of this responsibility is raised? I've been walking door to door and talking to voters in their homes and invariably voters tell me the traffic has just been horrendous. The overcrowding of the city has made a dramatic change in the last 4 years. And I don't think it's their perception. I think it is because we have actually increased the number of building units. Uh, In the last four years, we've doubled the number of building permits per year than we have in the last 40 years prior. So the roads are overcrowded. Parents tell me their children are in overcrowded classrooms. And residents tell me they're concerned about the city of Irvine dropping from the number one safest city in the in the country because we no longer have the ratio of police officers to residents due to this rapid growth of new population. I've I've heard that in some of the public forums where candidates have been assembling, and I I, I don't know that uh, residents. Uh, are fully aware of that, so I'm glad we have this forum right now. But, Mary, my question about awareness of, of this growth pressure and all that, I want to ask you in the institutional arena what your colleagues, now I'm not talking about constituents right now, but what the people that are going to be working on building more institutions, making more policy, what do those colleagues say to this pressure of growth? 
Well, my, my colleagues on the Planning Commission and their appointees to the City Council, the current City Council majority, supports this rapid growth and development. They are very happy to change the general plan as they did just three years ago and increase the population from 250,000, which was our original vision, to 287,000 by adding almost 10,000 new uh, new residential units around the Great Park. Okay, so, and we observed the leadership aspect, the leadership dynamic when the development order was approved in November of 2013 for the first round of development circling uh, the Great Park. So I, I don't know if you want to comment on how that votes for the next round of negotiations for the next development order and impacts and externalities of that subdivision's approval. Well, thank you. I'd love to do that because uh, to back up, I wanted to point out yes. that that land around the closed El Toro Air Base, which was actually auctioned off by the federal government, was purchased by Lennar Homes, now Five Point Communities, for a required population, I should say residential units of 3,600. And so the land was purchased knowing the land could use 3,600 residential units. This was then increased to 10,000 units in 2013. This land now can increase additional 10,000 units, and the developer five-point communities would like to develop the additional 10,000 new homes on that property and is not interested at all in slowing down or supporting city council or mayoral candidates who call for slowing down the growth of the city. So you watched up close on your service as the Planning Commission the deliberation for the infrastructure necessary, the carrying capacity of existing infrastructure, the set aside for new infrastructure. You witnessed that. What can you tell us you would expect with your said, you said originally 3,600 dwelling units were envisioned and now we're looking at uh, 30, not 3,600, but perhaps topping off at 20,000 development uh, Correct, correct. And so I'd like to comment on that because my main competitor in the mayoral race, Don Wagner, is calling for allowing new development with mitigation measures. And I'd like to tell you what the mitigation measures are for these 10,000 new homes that uh, the residents are, the developer is required before he gets his final track map to make sure that there is a comprehensive uh, transportation management plan in place, but that includes working with Spectra Motion and promoting and subsidizing alternatives to solo commuting and reducing trips in that way so that all the residents of the new houses should actually sign up for carpools and van pools and hold rideshare promotions at their work site and assist uh, employees in developing telecommuting at their homes and making sure they sign up for carpool matching. This is not a rational way to make sure that new 
housing projects have a transportation management plan. I mean, this is nonsense. How many people in those single-family, $3 million, six-bedroom, six-bath homes are going to sign up for carpools? The city has to get serious about reducing traffic congestion and not having mitigation measures such as these that I'm reading from the requirement that the city council put on the new homes around the Great Park. And also serving on the planning commission with you who is running for one of the city council seats is Anthony Quo, and I'm trying to get him on uh, also to interview him so people have a chance to hear him. He could speak his piece. But he, he also was a, a participant in legislating the terms for the 2012, I'm sorry, the 2013 development order and the upcoming negotiations. Well, yes, I know that is to be the case, that uh, Mr. Quo attempted to move the planning commission to a special date so that the developer could get the planning commission approval prior to Christmas time. So the uh, the personal feelings or the political feelings of certain city council and planning commission members has to be balanced with residents who think that a slower, more sensible rate of growth is the way in which the city should move forward. So you have a transportation ordinance in mind to propose to the city. Can you unpackage that entirely so we see how it could work? I'd like to see a growth control and traffic control ordinance that is put together to ensure that we have the infrastructure in place before we continue to allow additional building permits. In other words, the roads and the streets are not moving at a, uh, in a way in which we anticipated as a master plan new town. And so we need to fix our roads and our transportation system, add transit, and get this traffic mess under control. At that time, when we also have space in our classrooms working with the Irvine Unified School District to ensure that there are classroom space for children in the schools, then we will move in a way to increase our population in a gradual manner. And this, this ordinance will be offered at the very first meeting after I get elected, and I hope that we move ahead in a way that is much more rational and planned rather than giving the developers anything they want. And with my planning background and with the the commentary I read about, whether it's the, on the municipal level, it's the Coastal Commission state level, I always, I regularly, I shouldn't say always, I regularly hear the applicant for development says that negotiation with the governing body always improves the project. Why is that missing in the, what's your theory in terms of how the current city council and what you would bring to it in negotiation capacity and acumen, what, what is it that the council doesn't understand the leverage they have to not only serving the public but improving the project? Well, I'm so glad you asked that question because we know that the land value in Irvine has appreciated, appreciated dramatically, and that's because 
of the wonderful, creative, sensitive, compassionate, concerned citizens who live in this area. However, the land value needs recapture, and there we do need at every level to negotiate based upon uh, land development ways in which to allow the city to have specific community benefits. And this city council majority and planning commission majority don't seem to understand that they could actually negotiate with the developers in order to get back community benefits to produce an uh, economic analysis of this enhanced value, if you will, of the project so that it results in, in greater benefits to the community. And those, those benefits could include, of course, um, additional work on, on um, planning for roads and... More infrastructure in there. Intersections, yeah. I was saying. Infrastructure in general, of right. course. But it could have uh, transit fees. We could have entertainment, uh, child care additions. We could have open space opportunities. We could require child care land in, in return for new development. There are all sorts of ways in which the land value could be recaptured, and this city council does not seem to understand that they need to negotiate on behalf of the residents, not the developers. I believe the ideology of the current city council majority really focuses on the developer's right to use land in the most economically feasible way for the developer instead of the opposite, as I just explained, actually negotiating for the community. But I I guess it's not as though it were a real zero-sum kind of a a gain proposition that I I keep thinking, as I was saying earlier, that where a a well-negotiated development order brings value back to the developer too. They're not getting okay, less. They could, they yeah, could, it yes, could heighten course. it all. So yes. they can say, we've got great transportation flow. We've got, and so, and I want to say back onto the, both back to the master plan onto Irvine has such distinctive villages throughout the, the municipality. And there has been a discussion about what would happen to Woodbridge were their redevelopment to sort phase out the the commercial component of that village. So what do you see is the philosophy forward with keeping the mix of residential and commercial in new villages put in the ground? Well, absolutely. And that's been lost in the last several years as well by this uh, majority who in the last four years have not required the community benefits, such as the commercial centers. We have an entire village that has been built uh, with no shopping at all, no shopping centers. And the shopping centers that are required around the Great Park of Five Point Communities have not appeared. The requirements for shopping centers in the Irvine Business Complex have not appeared. We have seen nothing but housing in this hot market for housing. And it's very, very important in a balanced master plan community to have housing as well as commercial development, institutional development, businesses, etc. So the, uh, the focus on just adding more population by adding more housing has made our city way out of balance. And we need to make sure that we bring the community back into balance 
We take a time out. We talk about it in a rational manner, not with campaign slogans and uh, mailers, but really, really sit down and have a rational discussion of how to deal with this uncontrolled growth and development so that we, uh, we take this planning process very seriously and we move towards the future so that we have a, a master planned city to leave to our children and grandchildren. For those of you who just joined me, my guest is mayoral candidate and current planning commissioner, Marianne Guido, and we're talking about the village mix. And I I guess I wanted just to flag that's the transportation planning 10, it's not 101, it's a little more sophisticated level of planning, 105, 110, is that when you mix uses, you reduce trips generated per household. So it's a, it's a, it's a important consideration in addressing the transportation that people are feeling the uh, increased pain, shall we say. So Marianne Guido, I've had a number of climate scientists on my show, and they talk about it's now it's time for the municipalities to step up, and many are, with respect to local ordinances that address carbon footprints, water footprints, and all of the like, uh, because there's nothing happening at the federal level for an indefinite period. So do you have any plans that you would offer in that arena? Well, absolutely. The, uh, the current mayor dropped out of the mayor's national climate action agenda that was started uh, by uh, the mayors in Philadelphia and Los Angeles. And I would hope that as mayor that we would rejoin other cities in the United States so that we take climate change very seriously. We have to fight for the strongest possible climate agreements uh, also in the entire planet. I think the United Nations and the Framework Convention on Climate Change, the COP21 in Paris, moved in the right direction by requiring binding national greenhouse gas emission reductions. But this requires the cities to get involved as well. And as a model city, Irvine should take the lead. We have had a long commitment to sustainability in Irvine. In fact, we were one of the first cities to recognize the threat of climate change and uh, to begin to adopt policies to reduce our environmental impacts. But recently, in the last four years, there's been a movement away because, once again, based on ideological reasoning, this current city council majority has not recognized climate change as a major issue and one that should be focused at the uh, local level. Well, thank you. To wrap up, what is the major basis for your financial support in your mayoral campaign, Marianne Guido? Mines is is a very grassroots organization. I have gotten hundreds of donations and volunteer hours from so many constituents throughout the entire city of Irvine. If you look through my campaign contribution statements, you don't find all the developers and their their friends listed there. You will see ordinary citizens that really care about the city and the planning moving forward. So I, I would urge folks to realize who is the grassroots candidate and who is being supported by the developers with their uh, large donor pool of money that they use to send out nasty mailers and uh, TV ads to make sure that uh, the grassroots candidates are uh, 
are muddied and uh, confused by the voters. Unfortunately, we don't have enough time. I would like to have been able to have you address some of those criticisms because I'm hearing in a lot of uh, around lots of local water coolers, people are waiting for you to to answer some of the the negative campaign. But we don't have time. But we are going to bring up dark money with the the next installment with Larry Agron. So Marianne Guido, current planning commissioner and mayoral candidate. Thank you so much for being on Ask a Leader today. And uh, as I say to all candidates running for public office, thanks for running for us. Thank you, Claudia. Take care. Bye. Bye. We'll be right back with Larry Agron. And he's going to talk about dark money. And there'll be dark money 101 to dark money 2000. Be right back. Kamasi, Washington, at his tracks, Gibraltar Road. Welcome back to the show. My next guest today is Larry Agron, former mayor and former city council member of the city of Irvine. And after his graduating long ago, shall we say, from law school, he specialized in public interest law, where he has remained ever since. From 1979 to 1990, he served on the city council and returned to the council in 1998, where his stint ended in 2014 uh, his final bid for mayor uh, ending in 2012 so he returns to the program now to take up what is known as dark money welcome back to ask a leader larry agron well thank you claudia it's good to be with you i've had you on before i'm going to save all those long introductions of where you've been and all that kind of thing so we can get right into dark money 101 tonight let's begin with exactly what dark money is at the municipal level which we took up on the show with frank barbero and frank lunding who investigated the practices in california statewide but just give us a a brief description so we can start helping people flag it when they want to mess around with the the city clerk's uh, website you bet. Well, there's a recent, uh, over the last five years, very sordid history of special interest, uh, typically developer money, pouring into the city of Irvine to influence the outcome of elections, uh, particularly for mayor and for city council. That money is uh, typically routed by developers and other special interests through multiple layers of political action committees, so-called independent expenditure committees, uh, most of them uh, out of town. And it's not small money. We're talking here in this current council race, for example, and mayoral race, a million dollars in special interest money. And I'll, uh, I'll be direct about it. It's mainly being orchestrated by developer Five Point Communities and Emil Haddad, who of course heads up the UC Irvine Foundation, raising money for the university, presenting all kinds of ethical issues and questions uh, that the university needs to confront as well. We have a campaign contribution limit in our city of $470 per person per candidate that an individual uh, might be able to give. But the fact of the matter is, through these so-called independent expenditure committees, 
enormous sums, unlimited sums, are pouring into the city of Irvine. And it's clearly a uh, developer-inspired effort to totally take over the future of the city and the mayor uh, the mayor's seat and the city council. And I just want to say uh, I'm so pleased to be supporting Mary Ann Guido. She goes back to the very beginnings of the city and has been the guardian of our general plan and uh, has the courage to take on the developers. That's what this election is all about. Well, as they say, following the money, it's it's really important and it's an, an instructive thing for the voting to do, but it's very hard to, I mean, the dark money is dark for, I mean, the, the description is there uh, very purposefully that it's very hard to follow. And I, I spent a great deal of yesterday preparing for this segment to try to track down what's been filed to date. Uh, but the complicating factor is not only is it hard to find, if one can find it, but much of the reporting may not happen until after the constituents have cast their ballot at the general election. Do you want to comment about that? Well, you've uh, stated the problem, and of course uh, this is related to Citizens United and the idea that money is speech and that appropriate limits and regulations uh, are really uh, forbidden by the Constitution, and this is just a terrible, terrible problem across the entire country, and it's particularly pernicious in these local races where typically you have a a grassroots group, grassroots candidates, who are then uh, overwhelmed by the likes of Emil Haddad and Five Point Communities and other special interests who are just pouring the money in. Again, I described it as it goes through layers, right? layers of political action committees, so-called independent expenditure committees, and that's the way they get around our campaign contribution limits. It's, uh, it's a terrible situation. So I'm looking at my, my pamphlets that are starting to, to stuff up the mailbox, and I'm seeing there's one supporting a, a mayoral candidate, it's called Taxpayers for Ethical Government, and you can look it up, folks, and you can find out who uh, you can find out whom they're supporting. You can't find out who they are, but you can see whom they're supporting, and by that association, you get an idea of uh, the agenda there. Last cycle, I remember getting brochures from the California Homeowners Association and Friends of the Park, Five Point Communities. Did they did shell out? There was at least sixty-five thousand um, dollars that contribution they made to California Homeowners Association. Star Point Ventures who does the work with in concert with Five Point Communities. They paid $49,000 out. So this is sort of all in the background, which makes the contributions of the grassroots candidates seem rather quaint. Do you remember what, how some of the, the candidates, what, what the proportion of spending was, um, the ratio of in the 2014 cycle, Larry Agron? Well, it's um, depending on the race, it's anywhere from... Five to ten to one. In this race, uh, the spending uh, on the part of the uh, in support of the developer-funded candidates is uh, ten to one. Uh, that's why all these attack ads, these hit mailings, and attack ads on TV—they're not paid for by the candidates or by any local people. They're paid for by the uh, 
the developer fundamentally. And the people of Irvine have to ask themselves, rather than giving themselves a homework assignment of going through and trying to track all this business, which, as you point out, typically isn't revealed until after the election is over, I can tell you so far they've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars attacking Marianne Guido. They're going to spend a million dollars by the time it's all over, and people just have to ask themselves, are they going to succumb to these attack mailers uh, attacking the reputation for honesty, decency, integrity uh, of people like Marianne in an effort to tear them down? Are they going to go for that? Or are they going to reject it out of hand on Election Day and uh, vote to elect Marianne Guido, mayor of Irvine, and put the people back in control? It's just that simple. So one candidate had uh, shared with me that, that it costs about $35,000 to support one mailing around the city. So it's it that's if you've got a small budget and some of these candidates have almost I mean some of them are financing it entirely on their own. So it's a the the kind of asymmetry of financial heft is is something rather daunting. The available measures that the governor Brown signed into law uh, Senate bill uh, 1107 and 1349, along with the California Proposition 59, that's an advisory measure to overturn the U.S. Supreme Court's Citizens United decision. They're nibbling around the edges. What, Larry Agrin, do you see are, are remedies for the asymmetry of campaign finance at the municipal level? Well, obviously, in an ideal world, we would have publicly financed campaigns and private money would be uh, playing little or no role in the election of our public officials. That's an ideal world. Um, the ability to control the money now is beyond the reach of governmental institutions. I hate to say that, but it's true. Yeah. So the only remedy now is what I call an antidote uh, to all this is for voters to understand that any ugly hate mail that they are seeing in the last 30 to 45 days, they just have to know that comes from special interest from developers, and it ought to instruct you to reject it, reject it as voters. Um, it's just that simple. I think if <laughs> the voters here in Irvine and in other communities, if they basically say no to Five Point Communities and Emil Haddad and other developers and special interests who are trying to buy our city council, if they say no to that, that um, it may uh, teach the entire community, including those special interests, a lesson. So, Larry Agron, do you see, though, I, I understand that we've got to, I mean, voting's been the remedy for a lot of things. <laughs> it sort of, it, it puts people in office. It says, it says messages about what you think about what kinds of campaigning uh, has been going on. But I'm wondering uh, what we can do about the 501c4 kind of instruments that allow for the, I mean, that we're, there's a fiscal impact that there, it's a, a tax deductible activity that's intervening in the political process. I don't. Is there anything we can do about the 501c4? Well, actually, it's not tax deductible. It's just uh, these are nonprofit 
organizations. I'm telling you, having been a veteran of this for 50 years, I used to work on this problem as legal counsel with the state legislature. I've experienced the problem locally, and the modest reforms that over the years we put in place have absolutely been overwhelmed by Citizens United and by the McCutcheon uh, decision, yeah, and by very uh, clever uh, developers and other special interests who are willing to pour millions of dollars into even local races in order to have their way. It's just that simple. And uh, listening to Marianne Guido, uh, who preceded me on this program, somebody who's devoted uh, her entire adult life to the betterment of this city through grassroots and citizen participation in the planning process. She can't be bought. The others can. And I think even the young people at the university, they're understanding uh, all of this. They just have to act upon it. And I uh, I want to be just a, a strong advocate, full disclosure. I'm not only voting for, but trying to, in whatever ways I can, help Marianne Guido, who is pro-resident, pro-growth control and traffic control, willing to use the instrumentalities of government to improve our community. And the folks on the other side, backed by Five Point Communities, specifically Don Wagner, state legislator, who's been parachuted in to run on behalf of the developers, He's on the opposite side. He's willing to give the developers everything they want and more, and in the process, really shred and ruin our general plan. So it's Guido versus Wagner. People need to wise up and um, vote accordingly on uh, Election Day, November 8th or before. By the way, for city council, there's another outstanding candidate, uh, Melissa Fox, who uh, agrees with Guido on the issues. We had Melissa on last, Melissa Fox, last week. I'm uh, awaiting Don Wagner's, I've, I've spoken with him face-to-face, and he said he would be on the show again, and I'm awaiting his email reply so I can schedule him, hopefully on November 1st, uh, or pre-record him, because it's so important to have everybody listen to the voices of the people that are on our are, it's the one dimension on the ballot. I want to bring out the third to fourth dimensions in the interviews here. My guest for this portion of the show, as we're about to wrap it down, is Larry Agron, former city mayor, former city council, and we're talking about dark money, which uh, it's it's still dark. It's really dark. So I I guess I can direct people to the instrument, the city of Irvine.org, the city clerk tab, and campaign financing. Are there any other resources, Larry Agron, you would direct people for them to get some idea of the the magnitude uh, of this afoot? <laughs> no, the reports have already begun to, uh, to come in, and you can see if you leaf through those reports, hundreds of thousands of dollars have already been spent in attack ads against Marianne Guido, and uh, you'd have to... Uh, go into all the various committees, just trust me, it comes through layers of committees intended to hide the money. It's uh, either dark money, outright illegal in previous campaigns, uh, undisclosed, or it's what I refer to as gray money. 
it's legal, but barely, and it's hidden from public view. And yet you can get the, the gross figures. But look, people don't have to uh, research and try and prove a case here. It's so obvious what is going on. If you look at any of those commercials uh, that are being run on TV, the hit uh, attack ads against Marianne, those are not paid for by the committees uh, of these candidates. They're paid for by Five Point Communities and Starpoint and uh, uh, various developer interests who are trying to buy the city council. So I'm sorry we don't have more time, but I think we've got a little bit of a playbook for people to follow out the rest of the the election here. So Larry Agron, I want to thank you for coming on the show today and bringing us giving us a little more literacy about some of the the financial dynamics in the recesses and uh, a little more context about what's washing up in our mailbox. Well, so thank th- you for your uh, your vigilance and your uh, programmatic attention to uh, to this Claudia. It's oh, very important. Very important. Thanks for being on the show. We'll be back with Neil Kelly who's going to talk about the the what's on our ballot here at, and deadlines. We'll be right back. Ozomatli place in the sun. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My last guest today is Orange County Registrar of Voters, Neil Kelly. And what may be news to some, Orange County, California, folks, it's the fifth largest voting jurisdiction in the U.S., serving more than 1.6 million registered voters. Neil Kelly is here to take up the details, logistics for local voters, especially students, for California's November 8th general election. He was appointed a member of the United States Election Assistance Commission and the Board of Advisors and the EAC Voting System Standards Board, serves as the elected president of the California Association of Clerks and Election Officials and is the immediate past president for the National Association for County Recorders, Election Officials and Clerks. And when I said um, uh, over 14 years, that was with respect to being our Orange County Registrar Voters. Neil Kelly graciously makes himself available when I have the nagging tendency to request an interview during the extreme uptick of his election season responsibilities. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Neil Kelly. Yes, thank you. How uh, we just quickly ask how successful was last month's Rock the Vote at Elisa Creek Beach? I think it was great. You know, it's one of a hundred events that we've been doing throughout the county for the last well since January of this year. And at Elisa, we had about 500 impressions, which means that individuals on the beach and that showed up were close to 500. And we had 50 new volunteers and we had six new voter registrations. So it was good. Okay, because that, it's all in the numbers. Neil Kelly and I, we have these this, these shared fantasies of maxing out to all the 800% with turnout. We, we, right. just keep, <laughs> we talk about that all the time. So well, let's talk about the deadlines. Now, I've got that the October 24th is the last day to register to vote, generally speaking. And so I, I keep putting that up on our KUCI website and everywhere I can find an, an opportunity. But there's other deadlines, but I had difficulty, Neil Kelly, pulling them up on your website. Is there some uh, different configuration now? 
No, nothing's changed. I can I can point you where it's at if you just go to ocvote.com and at the top you see the voting link. Just click into that and it'll take you to the calendars. But you know, you bring up a couple of good points, Claudia, and that is uh, the deadlines are important. This will be the last year that we have a registration deadline, so uh, people need to to pay close attention to that. If they don't register before midnight on October 24th, they could miss out voting on November 8th. The uh, exception is for the newly made citizens, they are able right. to to register on as late as the election day. But we have, as some pe- if you're watching the press folks, there is a glut of paperwork that's being processed for people pending their citizen application to be approved. So what does the Orange County and other registrar voters offices do to, to help with processing those last minute applications? Well, unfortunately, we have no input or control over that that citizenship process. But what we I understand. do, yeah. But what we can, what we can do is to certainly give them the opportunity to vote as soon as that citizenship uh, paperwork is cleared up and, and they're declared a citizen, sworn in. I, you know, the good thing about the laws that changed uh, not too long ago in California is that um, from the close of registration all the way through election day, uh, up until eight o'clock on election day, a new citizen can register and cast a ballot. So it's exciting. It's it's so exciting. Yep. So, all right. So any other, uh, the deadlines, I, I haven't got my application, my uh, absentee b- ballot. So they're coming out here, right? We've got our pamphlets already for the, the statewide uh, initiatives, but when are we um, going to see our other ballots? And when's the, what's the deadline, since I don't have it, for yep. the, when we need to start popping these things out? So the county uh, pamphlets, those went in the mail last week. So we, we see through data from the post office that, that it has been delivered almost in every corner of the county. And that's that bright yellow cover, so people should see that. And then the vote-by-mail ballots, the first day we could mail those was yesterday. And it happened to be on a holiday, but we right. went ahead and processed those yesterday, and they're in the postal system now. So I would guess in the, just the next few days, people will start seeing those in their mailboxes. One thing that occurred on to kind of a nano level here is, so we've got living with us absentee voters that are voting away from this area so how do we get our hands on additional voters' pamphlets to send on to them? Because you're, you're being very good at economize on the paper so that all people registered at one address get one pamphlet. So how can I farm out to mine and all my friends who've got kiddos off to college or yours that you've yours are that are off serving and, and going to school? Right. How do we get them that extra paperwork? Well, you know, it's funny you bring that up because we've had, it's unusual we've had more people request uh, information for voting because they're going to be out of town this coming November than I can remember in 12 years. Really? Yeah, yesterday we had a tremendous amount of people coming in uh, looking for that information. And, you know, we have on our website at ocvote.com forward slash lookup the opportunity for people to not only get their election materials, but to see where their polling place would be if they were in county. So you could send them that link, and they could download that sample ballot really easily for themselves. Okay. All right. Then I'll, I'll direct them to that. Get off the social network and on to the, the, right. the, the adult programming here. Okay. So uh, early voting, I want you to spend as much time as possible on where, when, and especially what is happening with early voting at UC Irvine. So we're excited about a couple things. One is we're going to be operating what are called vote centers. Start, and this is the first time we've done this, starting on October the 29th through November 7th. 
They'll be at six locations around the county. And this will be an opportunity for voters to go in and vote in person early, or they would be able to replace a damaged ballot. They can drop off a vote-by-mail ballot. In fact, we'll have a couple of sites where they can drive through and drop them off. And do you mind if I list them out here real quick? I want you to, because I'm I'm hoping that UCI is in one of those six. Absolutely. It's actually beyond the six, so you'll like this. Okay. Uh, So the Anaheim Civic Center uh, with the Anaheim City Hall. The Irvine Civic Center, um, the Irvine City Hall, the Westminster Branch Library, and I'll give you a location where you can find the addresses in a second. Okay, good. Costa Mesa Neighborhood Community Center, the Mission Viejo City Hall, and our office here uh, at the Registrar of Voters. And you can find all of the address information at, and I'm going to give you a web address again, ocvote.com forward slash vote center. And that has all the details, including the times. And what's exciting about this, Claudia, is that it's the first time we've operated these large early voting centers on the weekends, including Sundays. So we'll be operating October 29th through November 7th, including the weekends. Now, for UCI, we are going to have uh, a mobile vote center set up on November the 1st from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. This will be an opportunity for all students to come there, and faculty as well, to come and cast their ballot early. And we'll be at the, the, I don't have terrific directions, but you probably know where this is at on your campus, the flagpole central to campus. So uh, we'll continue to get more drilled down information on the exact location, but in the meantime, you can find all that, that detail on our website. Okay, that is something we we just simply have to post on the KUCI website so we can steer Great. all the traffic. So it's that's going to be at from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. Mm-hmm. And I happen to know that's a Tuesday. It's a Tuesday before the election Correct. here on campus. Uh, otherwise, there's the, the Civic Center and then there's the other places that you mentioned for the uh, around the the, the 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 county, so well well done. Do you got to take a lot of credit for that, Neil Kelly? <laughs> well, you, you know, I, I, I everybody here on the team is taking credit, but I can tell you that I'm excited because this is that first opportunity for that Saturday Sunday voting, and uh, I'm looking forward to a lot of people showing up. Well, I have to just quickly make an editorial comment. Every time I hear somebody, especially in the private sector, say, "Well, we're really excited about," and I always <laughs> I just t- hold on to my wallet really tightly. And I, it's always like, listen, don't listen to the, the next uh, breath. Right. But this, this makes me so excited. I've got, I've got uh, bumps on my skin. So. Good, good. For those of you that have uh, just tuned in, this is Ask a Leader at KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. And my guest back here in the middle of his pressing business is Orange County Registrar of Voters, Neil Kelly. Tell us um, what kinds of identification are needed at any polling place in California? There's only one time you would need to show identification in California, and that is if you're a first-time voter in a federal election, which obviously this is, and you're registered through the mail. So there's very specific requirements. And when you do come to a polling place, if you're flagged as that uh, individual, you're going to have to show some form of ID. And that ID, there's lots of different options. You could use photo ID. You could use a utility bill from your home. Um, so, you, so you have options to be able to prove your residency and to show uh, who you are. Once you've done that, there's no need to show ID at any future point in your uh, election experience here in Orange County. And just, I, I like to remind people yes. that that is a state law. That's not our rules. That, that's coming from the legislature in terms of those, those rules. And unlike some of the other states we're reading about, student 
photo ID is legit. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Good. Well, are there any other issues that you're keeping tabs on? That that's, I'm not going to say keeping you up at night, but so, just something so we can make this show. Uh, we can sex up the show a little bit. Well, I tell you, I, I appreciate you asking that question because there are a number of things that keep me up at night. Just um, not negative things. Just things that where I'm always trying to look at the details. One of them is the volume. I mean, if you look at turnout from 2008, right, and that's a good indicator of I think where we're headed. We had a 74% turnout countywide. It's very possible we wow. could exceed that 74% uh, based on call volume and ballot requests and kind of the data that I'm looking at, at right now on a daily basis. So volume is something I'm always concerned about. Right. We're doing a lot of forecasting on demand in the polling places using data from MIT uh, that they've helped us with to be able to really drill down and figure out how many booths do we need at each site for each hour. So that that's one of the things I think that I'm paying most attention to right now. Okay. Well, and that always that threads right into our shared fantasy of 100% turnout. So that I'm so impressed and quickly can tell us who in the county gets the prize. What precinct, what city gets the prize for the best yield ever in turnout? It's Laguna Woods. Oh, and, and, and I'll oh, tell you, there's surprise. two cities always at the top, Laguna Woods and Villa Park. Okay. All right. Well, Neil Kelly, Orange County Registrar of Voters, thanks for being on the show today. I'm always nagging you, as I say, the, when, you've, when you least really want to hear from me. But it's, it's such a good all-points bulletin to get people on board. I'm glad you do. Okay. Thanks a lot, and uh, we'll stay tuned. I'm going to close the show with announcement is the Irvine City Council Candidates Forum at Chinese School in Northwood is this Saturday at 10 o'clock. It's at 9 Truman Road. That's my wrap. It's the Ask a Leader's local election coverage part three next week is the Irvine City Council candidate Ian DeLucian, Irvine Mayor candidate Gang Chen, and Irvine City Council candidate Shiva Farivar. They will talk individually and they will we'll ask them similar questions. Thank you everyone for listening and for uh, all our Jewish friends, I'm wishing you a, a fully Fulfilling and a, a redemptive Yom Kippur.